New York, this is Democracy Now! The fight for the good of Brazil. We will use the weapons that our adversaries fear the most. The truth that prevails over the lies. The hope that conquers fear. And the love that defeats hatred. Long live Brazil. And long live the Brazilian people. In Brazil, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva is inaugurated as the new president, marking a stunning comeback for the former union leader and president as he replaces far-right President Jair Bolsonaro, who boycotted the ceremony and fled to Orlando, Florida, while he faces multiple criminal investigations. We'll get the latest. Then, after years of legal challenges from former President Donald Trump, Congress releases six years of his tax returns. These tax returns contain relatively little information and not information that almost anybody would understand. They're extremely complex. The radical Democrats' behavior is a shame upon the U.S. Congress. That's Trump's response. We'll speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston, who says the tax returns show Trump knowingly committed brazen tax fraud. He's the author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, as well as Perfectly Legal, the covert campaign to rig our tax system to benefit the super-rich and cheat everybody else. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The 118th United States Congress officially begins today with lawmakers taking their oaths of office amidst a leadership fight in the House of Representatives. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is the frontrunner to be elected Speaker of the House, but appears short of the 218 votes needed to clinch a victory in the first round of voting. That's despite a major concession McCarthy made to far-right Republicans over the weekend when he agreed to a rule that would allow a snap election at any time to oust him from the role of House Speaker. Among the new Congress members to be sworn in today is Republican George Santos of New York, who's facing mounting outrage and a number of investigations after he admitted he lied about his work, his education, his family history on his resume and campaign platform. Federal and state investigations have been launched against Santos. Meanwhile, Brazilian authorities also announced this week they're planning to revive fraud charges against Santos, stemming from a 2008 incident in which Santos reportedly used a stolen checkbook and false name to make a $700 purchase in Rio de Janeiro. The criminal charges were approved by a Brazilian judge in 2011, but by then Santos was already living in New York. He reportedly confessed to the fraud while still in Brazil, but has recently denied having committed any crimes. In Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has been sworn in to a third term as president. Lula spoke to hundreds of thousands of supporters in the capital, Brasilia, Sunday, pledging to fight poverty, invest in education and health, and halt illegal logging in the Amazon rainforest. 
In the fight for the good of Brazil, we will use the weapons that our adversaries fear the most, the truth that prevails over the lies, the hope that conquers fear, and the love that defeats hatred. Long live Brazil, and long live the Brazilian people. The far-right former president, Jair Bolsonaro, boycotted Sunday's ceremony, leaving Brazil Friday, flying to Orlando, Florida, after first refusing to concede the election to Lula. We'll have more on Lula's historic third presidential term after headlines. The World Health Organization has once again called on China to share real-time data on China's massive surge in coronavirus cases amidst dire predictions that China could face over a million COVID deaths this year. The World Health Organization is seeking information on hospitalizations, infections, deaths, and wants genetic sequencing data that could help identify the emergence of dangerous new coronavirus variants. In a New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping defended his government's handling of the pandemic while acknowledging the former zero-COVID policy had taken a toll on China. After arduous efforts, we've overcome unprecedented difficulties and challenges, which were not easy for everyone. At present, the epidemic prevention and control is entering a new phase. It is still a time of struggle. Everyone is persevering and working hard, and the dawn lies ahead. In Europe, a massive heat dome has brought unseasonably warm winter weather that shattered records in at least seven countries. Weekend temperatures soared by as much as 36 degrees Fahrenheit above normal over a vast region stretching from France to western Russia. This comes after Europe logged its warmest year on record in 2022. Palestinians have condemned a visit by Israel's newly installed national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem. It was Ben-Gavir's first public act since he was sworn in last week to the most far-right government in Israel's history. He was previously convicted of racist incitement against Arabs and supporting a terrorist group. The Palestinian foreign ministry called his visit to Al-Aqsa under heavy security and unprecedented provocation. And a spokesperson for Hamas said it would lead to more conflict. It is clear that the members of the current government are more extreme than any previous one. Neither the U.S., nor the international community, nor the regional powers can stop the extremists of this government. Therefore, if this behavior continues, it will bring us all to a big conflict and a real battle on the ground. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces shot and killed two Palestinians and wounded three others in a raid on a village outside Jenin overnight Sunday. The killings came as Israel's army worked to demolish the family homes of two Palestinians who were killed in a shootout in September. This is Hani Abed, whose home was demolished. They made two families homeless. They were vengeful. And this is collective punishment. If they could, they would demolish the entire area. The policy that the occupation implements will definitely not bring the result they are expecting. They will not break our spirit. On the contrary, this will make people more determined and steadfast, God willing. 
Iran's top woman chess player has fled to Spain after receiving threats not to return to Iran for competing at an international tournament in Kazakhstan without a hijab. Iranian law requires women to wear a headscarf in public, even when visiting other countries. Sarasadat Khadam al-Sharia decision was seen as a gesture in solidarity with anti-government protests that erupted in Iran in September in response to the death of Masamini in the custody of Iranian so-called morality police. In related news, several Iranian soccer players were arrested after attending a New Year's Eve party with women and where alcohol was served. The players were current and former members of one of Tehran's prominent soccer clubs. A local media outlet said many of the detained soccer Soccer players had also expressed support for the mass protests. Ukraine's military says 400 Russian conscripts were killed and another 300 wounded in a massive New Year's Day missile strike in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region. In a rare admission of heavy battlefield losses, Russia's defense ministry acknowledged dozens of troops were killed but gave a much lower death toll. Russian air defense systems shot down two HIMARS missiles as a result of the strike by four rockets with high-explosive warheads against the temporary deployment point. 63 Russian servicemen were killed. Even if the lower death toll is accurate, it was one of the deadliest single attacks on Russian forces since the start of the war last February. It came as Russia began 2023 by firing a barrage of cruise missiles across Ukraine just after midnight New Year's Day. At the Vatican, tens of thousands of people have paid final respects to Pope Benedict as he lay in state in St. Peter's Basilica. Benedict died Saturday at the age of 95 in 2013. He shocked the Catholic Church when he became the first pontiff to resign in almost 600 years. His tenure was marked by widening sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. A 2021 report found Benedict failed to act in at least four cases of sexual abuse by priests when he was the Archbishop of Munich. Benedict was a fierce opponent of abortion, birth control, and LGBTQ plus rights. He opposed reforms to the Catholic Church, including allowing women to join the clergy. And as a cardinal, he led a campaign to stamp out liberation theology and to silence and expel priests who taught it. In Mexico, at least 17 people were killed after gunmen attacked a prison in the northern border city of Juarez Sunday. The Associated Press reports at least two dozen prisoners escaped, identified by local officials as members of a drug gang with ties to a powerful cartel. The drug lord Rafael Caro Quintero is reportedly among the escapees. Juarez, located across the border from El Paso, Texas, has been an epicenter of drug violence since the launch of the U.S.-backed so-called war on drugs that's killed tens of thousands of Mexicans. The state of Missouri is slated to execute the first openly transgender woman in U.S. history. 49-year-old Amber McLaughlin is scheduled to die by lethal injection today unless a request for clemency is approved by Missouri's Republican Governor Mike Parsons. Her clemency plea details her traumatic childhood, facing horrific abuse from a foster parent and her adoptive father. She suffered from a brain injury and fetal alcohol syndrome, struggled with severe mental health issues as an adult, having attempted suicide several times. She was convicted of murder and other charges in 2006. The jury in her case was deadlocked over her sentencing, but Missouri law allows the trial judge to issue a sentence in those cases, including the death penalty. 
she transitioned during her time in death row, would also be the first woman executed in Missouri since 1976. The House Ways and Means Committee released six years' worth of Trump's tax returns Friday. The release contains thousands of pages of tax documents for Trump and his wife Melania, along with business returns for several of Trump's hundreds of companies for the years he ran for president and was in office. The records reveal Trump paid just $750 in federal income tax during his first year in office in 2017. He paid no tax in his last year in office as president in 2020. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Johnston, who says the returns show Trump knowingly committed brazen tax fraud. And in sports news, Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin remains hospitalized in critical condition after he suffered a cardiac arrest on the field Monday night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The 24-year-old collapsed less than six minutes into the game's first quarter after making a tackle. Medical staff administered CPR and used a defibrillator to restore his pulse before bringing an ambulance onto the field. The game was indefinitely suspended as other football players wept. Hamlin was rushed to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where he was intubated and sedated. Hamlin's injury came just minutes after Bill's defensive back, Taron Johnson, left the game with a head injury. And just days after the Miami Dolphins quarterback, Tua Tagovailoa, suffered his third head injury of the season following a concussion that left him hospitalized in week four. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to Brazil where Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was inaugurated as the new president, marking a stunning comeback for the former union leader. We'll get the latest. Stay with us. Faz um cabelo bonito pra eu notar Que eu só quero mesmo é despentear Quero te agarrar Pode se preparar Porque eu tô voltando Foi pra tocar na vitrola o nosso som Estranho a camisola, tô voltando Da folga pra empregada Manda criançada pra casa da avó Que eu tô voltando que eu só volto amanhã se alguém chamar Telefone não deixa nem tocar Quero means I'm returning by Simone and Zelius Duncan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show in Latin America's largest country, Brazil, where people fill the street Sunday to celebrate the inauguration of Luis Inácio Lula da Silva as their new president, marking a stunning comeback for the former union leader and president who replaces the far-right president Jair Bolsonaro. 
We are here because the inauguration of Lula means we can resume the restoration of our democracy. We are here to show political force and that democracy includes all races, ethnicities and social classes. Lula served as Brazil's most popular president from 2003 to 2010 and helped lift tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty. But in 2018, as he prepared to run for office again, he was jailed on trumped-up corruption charges, paving the way for the election of Bolsonaro. The charges were later thrown out after he was imprisoned. Bolsonaro boycotted Sunday's ceremony. He left Brazil Friday and went to Orlando, Florida, after refusing to concede the election to Lula. Bolsonaro is staying with the Brazilian mixed martial arts fighter and longtime supporter José Aldo, and reportedly plans to stay in Florida for at least a month to avoid multiple criminal investigations. The move echoed Donald Trump's departure from Washington, D.C., hours before Joe Biden was sworn in as president. Lula heads Brazil's Workers' Party. During his inauguration Sunday afternoon in Brasilia, he lashed out against the far-right former President Bolsonaro and vowed to fight poverty and invest in education and health and halt illegal logging in the Amazon rainforest. The last few years, we undoubtedly lived in one of the worst periods in our history, an era of shadows, doubts, and a lot of suffering. But this nightmare came to an end, with the sovereign vote in the most important election since the country's return to democracy. An election that has shown the Brazilian people's commitment to democracy and its institutions. This extraordinary victory of democracy forces us to look forward, to forget our differences, which are much less than what unites us forever, the love for Brazil and the unbreakable faith in our people. Unfortunately, much of what we built in 13 years was destroyed in less than half that period. First by the coup against former President Dilma Rousseff in 2016, and then by the four years of a government that destroyed the country and whose legacy history will never forgive. In the fight for the good of Brazil, we will use the weapons that our adversaries fear the most, the truth that prevails over the lies, the hope that conquers fear, and the love that defeats hatred. Long live Brazil, and long live the Brazilian people. Lula has appointed 11 women to serve in his government, more than any previous administration. The Goldman Prize winner, Marina Silva, was chosen as Brazil's environmental minister. She held the post in Lula's previous two terms in office, during which Amazon deforestation slowed significantly. Indigenous land and water defender Sonia Guajajara was named Brazil's first-ever Minister for Indigenous Peoples. Lula also nominated the black activist, journalist and educator Agnelli Franco as Brazil's new Minister of Racial Equality. She's the sister of Marielle Franco, who was a human rights and racial justice activist and member of Rio de Janeiro City Council before she was assassinated in 2018. 
Ahead of Lula's swearing-in Sunday, the Brazilian Supreme Court temporarily banned registered gun owners from carrying their firearms in the capital, Brasilia, until after the inauguration ceremony. The move came amidst rising concerns of violence from the far right and supporters of the defeated President Jair Bolsonaro. Lula addressed Bolsonaro's supporters during a speech at the National Congress, where he was sworn into office for his third term in office. We do not carry any spirit of revenge against those who tried to subjugate the nation to their personal and ideological purposes, but we will guarantee the rule of law. Those who made mistakes will answer for their mistakes with the right to defense within the due legal process. As we broadcast, Brazil's new president, Lula, is paying his respects at the Afro-Brazilian soccer great Pele's open casket in Santos as one of his first actions as the country's new head of state. For more, we're joined by two guests. Maria Luisa Mendonça is director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil and a visiting scholar at the City University of New York Graduate Center. And journalist Michael Fox is host of the podcast Brazil on Fire, former editor of NACLA. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Maria Mendonça, let's begin with you. Uh, just talk about the significance of Lula returning as president, what this means. Yes, this is very, very important. It's a historical moment for Brazil. And as uh, we heard from Lula and also from the supporters that uh, were present at the inauguration, uh, this is about uh, the return of democracy in Brazil, because Bolsonaro was only able to get elected because there was a parliamentary coup against former President Dilma Rousseff in 2016 that opened the space uh, for that. And then uh, Lula was arrested, although, you know, there was no uh, evidence against him. So it was, you know, a long way uh, to return to democracy, and uh, I think it was very symbolic that uh, it was uh, important that Bolsonaro was not pres present at the inauguration. So uh, the, what meant was that uh, there were representatives from uh, different diverse sectors of Brazilian society that uh, uh, made uh, Lula uh, the new president. So it was a very important symbolic moment and uh, a moment of joy. And also it was important because the, in the first day, Lula also issued several executive orders that uh, are very important in terms of changing policy and rebuilding Brazilian institutions in uh, areas of uh, environmental protection, education, gun control, and also uh, changing policies, for example, to stop privatization of key um, public uh, corporations in Brazil. And Maria Luisa Mendoza, I'd like to ask you about the uh, while Lula himself is personally still very popular uh, in Brazil, the same is not necessarily true for the Workers' Party. Uh, what's going to be the, the problems uh, that he faces with the new Congress, if you could talk about that? 
Yes, there are a very strong lobby uh, in Congress. Uh, for example, you know, agribusiness, mining corporations, uh, they have very strong lobby. At the same time, uh, the, in the parliamentary elections, um, the, the party that lost most seats was the traditional conservative parties, not the left-wing progressive parties. So the PT still has uh, a broad coalition of progressive parties, and uh, I think that uh, Lula also can rebuild a lot of the institutions, as he is already doing. He is rebuilding uh, the Ministry of uh, Environment, uh, uh, the the Ministry of uh, Gender Equality, Racial Equality, uh, the Labor Ministry, and he appointed uh, very important key people to run those institutions. So, so I think that uh, he's going to be able to advance progressive policies, although, of course, you know, there will be a battle, I think, especially uh, with the agribusiness sector that is very strong in Brazil. At the same time, Lula also uh, already uh, signed important um, policies uh, to rebuild, for example, funding to protect uh, the Amazon, uh, and other important uh, areas in Brazil, the Cerrado, the Pantanal, the wetlands. So I think environmental protection is going to be key. And that's you know, important because the main uh, cause of environmental destruction is the expansion of agribusiness plantations. So I think that at the same time, Lula rebuilt the ministry that uh, is... Um, uh, that protects and gives support to small farmers in Brazil. So I think that that would be an important balance and much more participation of civil society and organizations, progressive organizations and social, and social movements in his administration. And I'd like to bring in Michael Fox, uh, the uh, freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA. Could you uh, welcome to Democracy Now? Could you talk to us about the foreign policy implications of Lula's uh, return, uh, both for Latin America and also, of course, he played a major role in the formation of the BRICS nations uh, of Brazil, Russia, China, India uh, and South Africa in terms of a new uh international poll against uh, foreign uh, Western imperialism. This is just huge. Uh, and and like you mentioned, Lula coming back is bringing back what he was able to do in the 2000s. You know, he created during his first two terms 35 different embassies, many of them in Latin America and the Caribbean and in Africa. The whole idea was really South-South ties. That's why the BRICS was so important. UNASUR, he was one of the founding members of the Union of South American Nations. That's going to be important again. And these are all things that that Bolsonaro had completely taken Brazil from. Uh, it had taken Brazil from these kind of international agreements, pulled Brazil from CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean uh, countries. And that's something that Lula's first trip, he's already talked about, he's going to be going to Argentina in just a few weeks to re-enter Brazil into that, uh, that, the, the, that regional integration, that regional organization. So these things are absolutely huge. And, and this is like Lula's bread and butter, right? Uh, you know, he, he transformed what was foreign policy for Brazil. And the whole idea was we're going to lift 
Brazil into an international sphere. We're going to talk with the richest countries. Uh, we're going to be di dialoguing with, for instance, the United States and China. Lula already has talked about the importance of these two different countries that are really key and are top trading partners for Brazil. But at the same time, he's going to continue this the regional integration. He brought in his new um, foreign minister, who was the foreign minister under Dilma Rousseff, Mauro Vieira, who's already talked about the top three tenets of Lula's foreign policy, which is going to be first South American relations, then Latin American relations, and then African relations, re-upping those, those deep ties with Africa, which Lula was so important. And we saw this at the inauguration on Sunday. 19 different heads of state were there and 65 different foreign delegations. We've never seen this before at a Brazilian inauguration, the, the highest number of people. And just to show you kind of the, 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 the interesting relationship that Lula brings to the world is you had the foreign uh, delegation from Ukraine, and right behind them was the foreign delegation from Russia, both of them wanting to be to be close to Lula. The BRICS was huge that he brought in. Lula also negotiated the, the Iran nuclear deal. So he is uh, this important, huge important figure on, on the international scene. Remember that Obama called him Okada, the man. Uh, and that is what he, he really brings back on an international level that's just going to be huge for Brazil. And Michael Fox, can you talk about the significance of, I mean, some talked about uh, Bolsonaro flying out. You might say he was fleeing. Uh, but on Friday, without conceding defeat, he flies to Orlando, not that far from where President Trump is, right at Mar-a-Lago, uh, often referred to, by the way, as the tropical Trump. Can you talk about the significance of this and the criminal investigations that may be beginning? Him leaving early is was kind of the, the, the final straw in uh, an administration which had just no respect for Brazilian democracy. And that's how so many people in Brazil see this and saw it on this day when he was flying out. In fact, there were all these tweets showing the video of his plane flying and people cheering in places all around the country because it was the final kind of leg of his government. And the fact that he flew to, to Florida, of all places. In fact, for weeks before, we had been hearing that he was going to be spending New Year's in Mar-a-Lago uh, with Trump. He obviously was not. Um, but it's hugely significant, the fact that he was not there to actually hand over the presidential sash. This is the first time that a Brazilian president since the end of the dictatorship in Brazil was not there to pass the presidential sash to the incoming president. Uh, and, and as Maria Luisa had already talked about, it was actually the, uh, this diverse group of Brazilian people, uh, uh, a black trash collector, um, uh, the, the folks from a, a cook, uh, a, a handicap activist who passed that sash on to Lula and it showed the Brazilian people coming together. So it was huge. And yes, there are all these different uh, these 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 convictions, these cases against Bolsonaro, which which are really, really important. What we saw yesterday, Peso, the small left party, has already asked the Supreme Court to issue preventative prison for Bolsonaro for the crimes that he's committed under his term. So this is going to be an interesting thing to see how this all plays out, you know, come in, in the coming weeks, in the coming months. What we understand is that part of the reason why he left early was that his lawyers uh, suggest that he should be leaving. You know, he, he might want to leave the country so as so as not to have have issues and problems in regarding these 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 different, um, you know, poten potential lawsuits against him. And Maria Luisa, Michael mentioned uh, the uh, military dictatorship, uh, the dark period of uh, Brazil's modern history. Uh, what is uh, your sense of the role of the Brazilian military at this point? 
Uh, quite a few, uh, obviously, of Bolsonaro supporters are hoping that the military will somehow or other step in and reverse what has happened. And there's a large uh, protest camp of Bolsonaro supporters that's been now in existence for weeks. Uh, talk about the, how uh, uh, how Lula will deal with or is expected to deal with the military. Yes, Lula is already in conversation with the military, even during his campaign. I think, of course, the military is divided. And uh, I think what we see right now is that uh, the majority of people within the military is not willing um, to take the a political role at this time. Uh, so Bolsonaro kind of instrumented the military and gave them uh, a lot of power in different institutions. But now uh, what Lula is doing is completely reforming the key institutions in the country and placing, uh, you know, technical people, people who are uh, really uh, experts in the in the fields that uh, where they uh, they are, for example, uh, for the first time, Brazilian will have a woman as the head of the Ministry of Health. And uh, she is a very important expert in public health. And uh, they are going to be investigating uh, why Bolsonaro did not buy vaccines at the time, why there were so many deaths in Brazil because of COVID that could be prevented. So, you know, I think that uh, we are rebuilding and transforming the institutions and the military is going to keep its traditional role uh, and not, you know, take the role of uh, civilian and civil society organizations. So I think that, you know, there has been uh, negotiations and uh, I think we are very happy, you know, social movements in Brazil are very happy with uh, how Lula is rebuilding the institutions and, uh, you know, really bringing the best experts to each area um, in terms of, uh, you know, now moving forward and rebuilding policies that uh, would benefit the majority of the society. Let's talk about the people he's appointed, the 11 women to serve in the government more than any other previous administration, like the Goldman Prize winner Marina Silva, chosen as Brazil's environmental minister, held the post in his previous two terms, during which Amazon deforestation slowed significantly. And then Sonia Guajajara, the indigenous land and water defender, and Brazil's first-ever minister. Minister for Indigenous Peoples. Um, Lula also nominated the black activist, journalist and educator Aniele Franco as Brazil's new Minister of Racial Equality. So significant who she is, the sister of Marielle Franco, who is that human rights and racial justice activist, Rio de Janeiro City Council member who was assassinated in 2018. And Michael Fox, uh, there was questions of the Bolsonaro family being linked to that assassination. Can you talk about these people? Game changer, Amy. It's such a game changer. I mean, you have now for the first time uh, in years, I mean, definitely since well before Bolsonaro, Marita Silva, Sonia Guadalajara, you have people that are actually focused on trying to defend the Amazon rainforest and are there and ready to stop deforestation. I actually spoke with Marina Silva uh, just before 
the Lula's electoral victory. And she had actually said that I've already handed the documents that Lula needs to get us to deforestation zero, zero, de- zero deforestation. And now we just need to take those steps to be able to implement them. It's not going to be easy, but she they, they were able to do it under under Lula's first administration. And that's just absolutely key. Uh, the fact that there's an indigenous person, like you said, and there is now an indigenous ministry. The indigenous peoples have been so they've had their back against the wall. They have been attacked under the Bolsonaro government. The, the Amazon rainforest has and what we've seen in, in indigenous territories, 50 uh, percent of the of the, the the deforestation happening under Bolsonaro was in and on indigenous and conservation zones. So the fact that there is now an indigenous ministry led by indigenous activist Sonia Wadajara, who is part of the largest indigenous organization, is just absolutely key. Uh, the, the fact that Maria Lifranco's sister is now the head of, of, of racial justice is just huge. And so all these things bring in this absolute change. I mean, when we talk about the themes that Lula's government means, the idea of diversity, of unity, and absolute change from what we've seen under Bolsonaro, uh, the pushback on the white supremacy that's that's been attacking Brazil so much, and the attacks and the lies, uh, this is just a, a, a complete game changer for for Brazil, and and it and and you know it, it really marks the what what the coming days and the coming weeks and the coming months are going to mean for for Lula. And Maria Luisa, I wanted to ask you about the role of the uh, the of ju- the judiciary in Brazil. It's been very controversial. Uh, the judges have uh, have. Uh, been accused oftentimes of trying to shape uh, the, the political process by their rulings. How do you expect the Supreme Court and the judiciary uh, to act now under the new uh, with the new Lula administration? Yes, we have seen a change uh, in the Supreme Court since the parliamentary coup against President Dilma Rousseff, because the Supreme Court went along with the coup at that time. But I think during the Bolsonaro administration, he was so extreme in terms of attacking all democratic institutions in Brazil, including attacking the Supreme Court, that then we saw the Supreme Court taking a turn and really uh, making sure that uh, we will have free and fair elections this time. And, uh, you know, getting Lula out of jail and uh, restoring democracy. So I think that uh, we have seen that change, which is very important. And uh, also the new uh, Minister of Justice in Brazil uh, also is willing to move forward, for example, with the investigation on the assassination of uh, Marielle Franco and many other investigations that uh, were stopped during Bolsonaro's administration. So I think we will have important um, um, advancements in that area as well, um, in terms of, uh, you know, fighting against impunity in the country. And, uh, of course, there will be always a battle. Uh, Sergio Moro, who was the judge that, uh, you know, made up the case against Lula, was elected to the Senate. So, of course, you know, we will have uh, still a lot to do in terms of activism in Brazil. But uh, we have very important measures and policies that uh, just in this last couple of days we have seen um, that uh, you know, key policies have been announced. 
Finally, uh, Michael Fox, um, one of his first acts in office, Lula's and Santos today in Brazil, paying respects to Pele, um, known as the king, uh, the great Afro-Brazilian soccer player, the soccer icon of the world, um, at the 16,000-person stadium where he made some of his best goals, um, comforting Pele's widow. Um, if you could end by talking about the significance of this start. And interestingly, Pele, who overcame so much racism in Brazil, yet also the complex relationship he had with the Brazilian coup leaders. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that this comes on in one of Lula's first days and the fact that he says, you know, despite just being inaugurated, I'm going to this is really, really key. You know, the loss of Pele was is has been huge for Brazil. There was three days of mourning. Uh, The lights were on and, um, you know, at, at the stadiums across the country, people came out crying because of what he meant. You know, this is the soccer great, but he also unified a country. Right. Uh, and brought them, uh, forward so much. Now, like you said, his relationship with, with the dictatorship, his relationship with power was very complicated because he didn't often speak out. Uh, he didn't come out against them and he liked to, to, to play it easy. But at the same time, what he represented for Brazil was huge. And he was this international symbol that was important for even the United States. If, if Pele had never come to play at the Cosmos, I probably never would, would have been playing soccer in the early 80s. You know? And so the fact that Lula was there, that the fact that they held off this, his funeral on this day of mourning for today uh, is key and is absolutely um, really, re- really timely. And it's showing of what this means, the beginning of, of this new administration, the beginning of hope really, for Brazil. That's what everyone's talking about. Uh, and, and I think this is just a really important day for, for Brazil and Brazilians. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us. Um, uh, Michael Fox, uh, former editor of NACLA, host of the podcast Brazil on Fire, and Maria Luisa Mendonça, director of the Network for Justice, Social Justice and Human uh, Rights in Brazil. Next up, after years of legal challenges from former President Donald Trump, Congress releases six years of Trump's tax returns. We'll speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who wrote two books about Donald Trump, David K. Johnston. He says the returns show Trump knowingly committed brazen tax fraud. We'll look at what he did and didn't pay in taxes in this country and what he did pay in taxes in countries around the world. Stay with us.
System of Survival by Earth, Wind and Fire. The band's drummer, Fred White, died New Year's Day at the age of 67. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. After years of legal battles between former President Donald Trump and Congress, the House Ways and Means Committee released six years of Trump's tax returns Friday, including thousands of documents from the years he ran for president and was in office. The records reveal Trump paid just $750 in federal income taxes during his first year in office in 2017. In his last year in office, 2020, he paid no federal taxes. They also show the tax law Trump signed in late 2017 opened new opportunities for him and disclosed income from a wide range of foreign countries, including Canada, Panama, the Caribbean island of St. Martin, the Philippines, United Arab Emirates, China and Britain. Trump responded to the release in a video statement. These tax returns contain relatively little information and not information that Almost anybody would understand they're extremely complex. The radical Democrats' behavior is a shame upon the U.S. Congress. In fact, our next guest says the tax returns show Trump took tax losses he knew were fraudulent and that Trump knowingly committed brazen tax fraud. David K. Johnston is Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, co-founder of D.C. Reporter's most recent book titled The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, also wrote Perfectly Legal, the covert campaign to rig our tax system to benefit the super-rich and cheat everybody else. David, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Talk about what you found most significant, what you were most surprised by in these latest tax releases. Well, that Donald used a number of legal devices to reduce taxes is no surprise. But he did something absolutely brazen. And that requires we go back to 1984. That was the year Trump Tower was selling apartments like crazy and his first casino opened. So he had Amazons of cash flowing into his pockets. He filed a tax return that included something called a Schedule C. That's what freelancers uh, use. It's what I use for my book writing business. And on it, he showed no revenue, but over $600,000 of expenses. Auditors from the city of New York and the state of New York spotted that, disallowed it. Trump demanded trials. Uh, he lost both. The judges wrote scathing opinions about what he was doing. So what turns up in these six years of tax returns? Well, he filed 65 of Schedule C's. 26 of them had zero revenue and hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses. There were a handful of others where the income and the expenses exactly to the dollar equaled out, which is impossible to believe is anything but manipulation. For those 26 returns where he was on notice that it's illegal to create a fictitious business and take deductions, he could easily be prosecuted either by the federal government or Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, for cheating on state taxes the same way. And that, I think, is the most brazen thing in there. And, and David K. Johnson, for those people who are not familiar with these Schedule Cs, what are the IRS regulations about being able to have a business that has no income but holds, has all kinds of expenses? And how long can that go on before the IRS normally uh, uh, has a red flag? 
to go after you. Right. You can start up a business and have expenses to start up, but you have to show that you were attempting to make a profit. If you go on for five years, the IRS will almost always declare that this is a hobby and the taxpayers aren't going to subsidize your hobby. But that Trump did 26 of these shows how determined he was to thumb his nose at the law. And Trump has always done this. I mean, I've known Donald now for almost 35 years, and he's always thumbing his nose at the law when he gets caught, as he has repeatedly in various civil and regulatory actions and and some court cases like where he cheated illegal immigrants, uh, as he called them, who were brought into the country to work for him. Um, He always somehow says, oh, no, this is a great victory for me. You don't know what you're talking about. It's too complicated. Nonsense. Donald Trump's been a criminal his whole life. He's just very good at evading law enforcement. And uh, unlike, let's say, a reporter like Maggie Haberman, whose recent book on Trump has gotten a lot of attention as a new expert on Trump, there are people like you and, of course, the late, great Wayne Barrett, who have been tracking, who were tracking Trump over decades. Uh, what this whole issue of him actually during the six years of, of uh, his running for president and being president actually having uh, uh, net losses? Could you talk about that? Well, Donald reported net losses. We should think about that the way when we talk about crime, reported crime. We don't know the real level of that. So Donald reported Massive losses, so big that he had 150-some million dollars of positive income, wages, capital gains, dividends, interest, and pensions, 150 million plus. But his tax returns show negative income of about $53 million. That's a $200 million swing. A lot of that was accomplished through laws that, a law that Donald Trump lobbied for in 1992 that allows real estate people, people who are big real estate investors, not mom and pop, uh, I own, you know, one rental unit people, but big real estate investors to live pretty much tax free if their only income is from real estate and the rest of their income is modest. Uh, Donald, uh, I've been told by a number of retired IRS agents who've reached out to me that they've gone over the returns And their fundamental conclusion, and these are people who don't know each other, they know me, they all said the same thing. A lot of the numbers on the tax returns appear to be just made up. Of course, whoever heard of Donald just making something up? I wanted to go back to 2016, one of these key presidential debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, with this exchange about Trump's taxes. So you've got to ask yourself— Why won't he release his tax returns? And I think there may be a couple of reasons. First, maybe he's not as rich as he says he is. Second, maybe he's not as charitable as he claims to be. Third, we don't know all of his business dealings, but we have been told through investigative reporting that he owes about $650 million to Wall Street and foreign banks Or maybe he doesn't want the American people, all of you watching tonight, to know that he's paid nothing in federal taxes, because the only years that anybody's ever seen were a couple of years when he had to turn them over to state authorities when he was trying to get a casino license, and they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So if he's paid... 
That makes me smart, uh, Donald Trump said in the background. And then four years later, in the presidential debate with Joe Biden, with moderator Chris Wallace. I know that you pay a lot of other taxes, but I'm asking you the specific question. Is it true that you paid $750 in federal income taxes each of those two years? I paid millions of dollars in taxes, millions of dollars of income tax. And let me just tell you, there was a story in one of the papers. Show I paid, I paid $38 million one year. I paid $27 million Show us your tax one year. returns. I went... Uh, you'll see it as soon as it's finished. You'll see it. You know, oh. if you want to do, go to the Board of Elections. There's a 118-page or so report that says everything I have, every bank I have, I'm totally under-leveraged because the assets are extremely good, and we have a very—we have a—I built Sir, a great I'm asking company. you a specific question, which but is— let me tell you— I, I understand all of that. I, I understand all of that. But, but let me, at, no, Mr. President, I'm asking you a question. Will you tell us how much you paid in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017? Millions of dollars. You paid millions of dollars? Millions in, of dollars. So yes. not seven hundred Millions of dollars. And you'll get to see I, it. I'm, and you'll get to when? see it. When will we get to see it? Well, we just got to see it in 2022 at the end of the year. Um, I wanted to ask you to respond to these, David K. Johnston, to your allegation that just shows he committed tax fraud, which would mean he should end up in prison. And then um, maybe he's talking about the millions of dollars he paid in taxes, not to the U.S. government, but to governments around the world. Yeah, the, the tax returns, Amy, show that Donald paid more taxes, income taxes, to foreign governments ten, than to the United States. And Donald's foreign entanglements as president should concern us a lot. You'll recall in the 2016 campaign, he said, you know, the Saudis buy lots of apartments from me. They pay big prices. Why shouldn't I like them? I like them. That tells you that he's influenced by people putting money in his pocket, and the president of the United States should not be. He should be insulated from that. Uh, everything you heard Donald say during the two debates with Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden was basically nonsense. Uh, in the case of paying taxes, there's a tiny sliver of truth because he paid overseas. The rest of it is absolute nonsense. And he knew it was absolute nonsense. But understand, Donald has no problem with lying through his teeth. He's lied under oath in judicial proceedings. Uh, Donald, Donald essentially believes that whatever he says makes it so. So he just makes stuff up. What about breaking David, the law? Well, why didn't auditors catch Donald Trump is a very good question. First of all, uh, Congress has given the IRS for two decades, um, more than two decades, extra money to pursue the working poor and make sure they don't cheat on their taxes. But at the top, the Republicans have ordered the cuts of audits of corporations and wealthy people. Almost 25,000 families make $10 million a year or more. In the most recent year, we have data 66 audits were closed. That's nothing. That's a fraction of 1% of those families. Secondly, Donald knows that so long as he has loss carry forwards, that is a tax deduction he couldn't use this year, but he can use in future years. An auditor assigned to his tax return would quickly conclude that even if he found a whole bunch of bogus material, he'd still owe no taxes. So the IRS practice is generally to close such a file and move on to one that's easier and will produce immediate revenue. We need to change that. 
Um, I've asked the IRS and members of Congress now for decades to conduct a detailed study of people who report negative incomes, not once in a while because a business fails, but year after year after year, which is what Trump does. I think we discover some shocking things about our tax system. Yes, Juan. David, uh, I'd like to ask you, in terms of this, going back to the Schedule C issue that you mentioned, you highlighted, uh, in one piece you wrote about it, you said that you thought that this was the easiest case to make in terms of a potential criminal uh, activity. Uh, Why is that? And why would a jury be more likely to find someone guilty uh, just on these Schedule C violations than on the more complex uh, legal issues that, that, that arise when you study Trump's filings uh, in depth. Yeah. Juan, first of all, that's not the most important case to bring. The most important case are the human intelligence documents he stole and took to Mar-a-Lago. But on the tax front, it, creating a fictitious business and cre- taking tax deductions for it is a plain and simple thing ordinary people can understand. Many of the things Donald Trump has done with his taxes are esoteric. It took me years and years and years to learn uh, how the tax system really works. We pay tax lawyers tremendous amounts of money because our tax code unnecessarily is ridiculously complicated and involves very complex uh, concepts involving accounting and depreciation and recognition of income and all sorts of terms that I'm sure most people watching are going, what? Uh, But this is simple and easy to prove. And remember, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, got 17 felony convictions on 17 charges against the Trump organization and a subsidiary company, both 100 percent owned by Donald Trump, for much smaller tax fraud involving freebies that were untaxed to executives, uh, cars, apartments, things like that. Uh, showing that to people, here's the tax return. There's no evidence of a business that existed. He took these deductions. There's no evidence of uh, documentation, receipts and invoices and things that show actual business. People will grasp that, I believe, and it would not. I, I think it would take a prosecutor at most three days to present the case. Finally, uh, why was only one IRS agent um, charged with investigating and reviewing Donald Trump's taxes when he was president? The significance of that kind of review not having happened, even though it's the law, David. Right. Um, Presidential tax returns and vice presidential returns are supposed to be audited. Biden and uh, Kamala Harris have been audited. Obama and Biden were audited. Donald Trump appointed the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, and he appointed Charles Reddick, who until recently was the IRS commissioner. And while they say they had no idea that these audits weren't being done, they're responsible. Doesn't matter if you didn't know. The question is, why didn't you know? Assigning a single IRS agent to something this complex and refusing him access to specialists. The IRS employs we have specialists ten seconds. in everything, uh, all sorts of things. It shows you that this is the lawlessness of the Trump administration. They were lawless. 
Well, David K. Johnston, we thank you so much for being with us twice, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, co-founder of DC Report. He is passing the baton and stepping down from that, author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, and many more books, including Perfectly Legal, The Covert Campaign to Rig Our Taxes and to Benefit the Super-Rich and Cheat Everybody Else. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thank <laughs> you.